You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, now as we uh, turn to read and understand your word, would you give us humble hearts um, to learn what you have to say to us about resurrection, not only your son's resurrection, but the resurrection of your faithful. And may that uh, word sink into our hearts uh, that we might uh, find hope in it. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are wrapping up 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we've been in for several weeks, which addresses the topic of resurrection and related to that. I mean, specifically Jesus Christ's resurrection, but the general concept of resurrection for all people. And related to that, of course, is the topic of death which has come up in our sermons, but I want to take it sort of head on today, uh, the idea of death. And death is the most uh, certain sign, perhaps, that we have in this life, that we live in a broken world. We might try to explain death away, but there's something deep down inside all of us that knows that it's simply not right. And meanwhile, many of us, though, we, we try to ignore this. We try to ignore death or we avoid it by our own strength. We might do things like participate in different exercise programs or, or diets to sort of um, to, to find a sense of immortality, to keep death at bay. As I was telling Holly, I think yesterday, even if I eat the best diet humanly possible, I'll still die in, in 120 years or, or fewer. You know, I mean, there's nothing that I can do, humanly speaking, that's going to leave lead me to immortality. I might feel better, you know, for many of those years, but inevitably uh, I'm going to I'm going to die and we might even intervene unnaturally with things like uh, creams that we can buy to sort of take the wrinkles away or pills that we can consume or plastic surgery uh, that sort of lie to us to say that we're basically uh, not dying when we are. Or we, nowadays, what we do is we quarantine death, that uh, we keep it uh, in, usually in a sort of, in a hospital room where only immediate family members will be. And this wasn't the case, you know, even just decades ago, especially over a century ago, people had a regular acquaintance with death. People died in, in homes and people saw this. But now, uh, unfortunately, the first death that many people will experience firsthand will be their own uh, because we've just quarantined death so much in our world. Or more disturbingly, with respect to death, we laugh in the face of death, uh, making light of it. A secular friend of mine recently told me that they're willing to risk being wrong about death and what happens on uh, the other side, uh, that they'd boldly go into death unsure of uh, what's on the other side, as if it were a sort of extreme adventure sport, something like climbing Mount Everest or uh, a sort of exploration into unknown territory, like a, a mission to Mars, you know, and being the, the, the first person uh, to set foot on Mars, that sort of exploration of, you know, I don't know what's on the other side, but uh, I'm boldly willing uh, to go there uh, without uh, any sort of ideas. And this is uh, because we live in a society that depends on a, a, a philosophical set of ideas called materialism, materialism, which means that many of us, and you've probably said this before, or you've heard people say, 
they can't see it, they can't believe it unless they see it. I, I won't believe it unless I see it. That's basically a sort of um, a basic way of describing what materialism is. Uh, and this, uh, with this framework, any claim about reality beyond the grave is considered unknown. Uh, we can't say that people live beyond death because we've never seen it happen before. Uh, to, to maintain integrity with a materialist uh, uh, mindset, we have to say, you know, we, we just don't know uh, because we've personally never seen it before. And, you know, I don't know anyone who's, who's died and come back to, to tell me what's on, beyond the grave. But death actually is not unexplored territory. We do have intel. We, we have reconnaissance information, as it were, of someone who has been on uh, the other side and come back to tell the tale. And this is why followers of Jesus Christ can confidently make some claims uh, about reality uh, beyond the grave and life beyond death, that someone has come from outside of the material world. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm not just saying earth like a globe, but imagine this is the material universe, you know, all that we know, that someone outside of the material universe that we understand and can look at with telescopes and microscopes, that someone outside of that has actually come inside to tell us the truth about reality, about the way the world actually works about things that we cannot see. And, and, and this was a man, and uh, he died, and, and he came back to life uh, to tell us about life beyond the grave. And uh, people saw him, and they spent time with him, they touched him, they ate meals with him, they saw him eat food that went in his mouth and disappeared inside of his, inside of his body. And this man was Jesus of Nazareth who also claimed to be the Son of God, which, this, which is to say that he is God himself, that God himself, outside of the material universe that we understand, came in and lived a human life and died a human death and, and came back to tell us about it. Well, the Apostle Paul explained that most people will consider such claims foolish, that if you talk to people about these kinds of things, that you know what he's explaining in chapter 15 or what I'm saying to you now, if you sort of walk around in this world and talk about such things, people will call you a fool. And indeed, we, we see him receive uh, such a reception in the city of Athens. If you read Acts, remember that, um, that he was in Athens just before he went to Corinth. Uh, that he was uh, preaching and teaching there to the, the, the intellectual elite in Athens, this message of resurrection. And we, we hear in Acts chapter 17, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That some people, when hearing this message, will not only think you're a fool, but will mock you uh, for it. And then he goes on to explain why this reaction happens in both of his letters uh, to the Corinthians. If uh, We've been in this letter for months. I think we started back in, in January. Remember back in January? Was that when it was? When we were in chapter 1, um, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then if you go on to read 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, the God of this world has blinded 
the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then in our passage today, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, so there's a, there's a major problem with the materialism point of view. Remember that materialism is the, the uh, philosophical idea that says, I won't believe it unless I see it. Well, the problem is that materialism is actually blind, as he said in 2 Corinthians. It's veiled. It sees only partial reality, that there is more beyond the reality that can be seen or touched or investigated by looking at this world. There's more that, that, than meets the eye. And not only is materialism blind, but it's also perishing. Did you hear that repetition in each of those verses? That the, the way of this world is, is perishing. It's dying. Now let's pay some uh, close attention to what Paul says about the perishable in chapter 15 in our passage today. He says uh, in, the, in our first verse, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he repeats it, saying in a sort of nuanced, slightly different way in the second half of that verse, for emphasis, he says, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And then later in uh, verse 56, later uh, down in the chapter, he explains that this all has to do with sin. Sin, which is our, the brokenness inside of you and me and in the world, our rebellion that pits us uh, against God. And that death is the sure and certain sign of our sinfulness. He explains in, in 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Well, what does this mean? What does he mean by this? So this is an important verse for understanding our, our passage today, even though it's a little bit uh, sort of, you're, when you read it, you're like, huh? At least I was, you know, when I, when I read it. I'm like, what does he, what does he really mean here? Uh, he means that because we are sinful... Because we're rebellious against God, because of our brokenness, because of our sin, uh, death is a big problem for us. And because of the perfect law of God, the, the sinful cannot escape on their own. Because at death we meet judgment. And what is to be judged is our sinfulness. And so I know this is a bit rough going, so it's helpful actually to look at verse 56 and kind of read it backwards. I actually find it helpful if you look at verse 56 and sort of read it backwards. And it would go like this. Uh, he talks about the law. Well, the law of God is absolute, 100%, perfect. He means what he's saying. There's no escape from the law of God, which is a problem for sin. Remember, the sin is that brokenness, that rebellion inside of us. And therefore, sinners, when they face death, face the sting of death. It's a horror because on the other side is judgment according to God's law of our sin. And so without any sort of intervention, without doing it on our own, we are doomed to judgment unless someone does something about it, someone other than us, unless someone intervenes for us. And someone has. And here, that's, here's the good news. If you, don't, if you don't stop reading at verse 56, go on to read verse 57 where he says, but... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory over the grave, through Jesus Christ. 
In other words, if death has a sort of deadly, venomous sting like a scorpion or a venomous bite like a, like a, a snake, Jesus Christ stands between us and the venomous sting, removing the problem of death for us. And we know this is true because Jesus Christ came uh, and lived a, de- a life and, and, and died an actual human death before us, but it didn't end there. You know, it, if, if the Christian message ended with Christ's death, uh, we'd all be here, as he says earlier in chapter 15, in vain. You know, we might as well just go down to Paramount and have a beer and a burger, you know, because we're just wasting our time. And by the way, their food is really good. Afterwards, if you're looking for a good restaurant, the fun guy, which is the, um, the vegetarian sandwich there, is really good, but it makes a big mess. If that's all that happened, if, if, if Jesus Christ, if all he did was come and die, we'd be wasting our time. But that's not the end of the story. He actually came back from death. He, he rose from the grave. Uh, affirming this intervention between us and the sting of death and the, the immortality that he offers is for real, that it's the real deal. Well, some will say when hearing this, maybe some of you say tonight, you know, but, but how can you know that all of this about Jesus Christ is, is true? That it's, uh, how can you be sure about this? And again, this is the materialist position. But I remind you that Paul made an assertion at the very beginning of chapter 15 that 500 people, over 500 people, saw the risen Jesus Christ that they spent time with him, some of them actually touched him, they ate meals with him, uh, they walked with him. And uh, uh, and many of these uh, witnesses go on to proclaim the very message that they they saw this, that they spent time with this man to their own peril, with no earthly gain. No earthly gain came out of it. For many of them, not only were they mocked like Paul there in Athens, but some were strung up to their death. And yet, something they saw, 500 people, this couldn't be a mass delusion. There's nothing in recorded history of this many people being uh, deluded uh, simultaneously with such a consistent message. Um, And... Many thoughtful people who actually were uh, formerly skeptics or atheists have investigated the evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection, have looked into it. Many have looked into it to refute it and have come out on the other side believers and are now followers of Jesus Christ. And you can read the books of some of these people, like the investigative journalist uh, from Chicago named Lee Strobel. Uh, who was investigating these things to prove it wrong and has now created a whole cottage industry and books about this stuff. Or a homicide detective who's used to handling evidence and taking evidence seriously named J. Warner Wallace. Or a classics professor from Oxford named C.S. Lewis. Or Peter Hitchens, who's the brother of Christopher Hitchens, the famous new atheist, is a believer. Did you know this? Or a former Muslim named Nabil Qureshi who spent years, several years, in looking into the resurrection to prove it wrong uh, in order to assert his, his, his Muslim faith and then ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. Or a Jewish theologian and historian named Pinchas Lapid who wrote a book called The Resurrection of Jesus. He said this, I accept the resurrection of Jesus not as an invention of the community of disciples but as an historical event. 
And sadly, he didn't become a follower of Jesus Christ, actually, demonstrating that that evidence for some people isn't always uh, enough. And there's more that I can I can cite, but just look. I mean, just look at the story here in First uh, Corinthians 15, that Paul's saying that 500 people saw this, that it didn't happen in a dark corner, and are making this claim about God's work in history, uh, and that you, as he said to them, uh, many of them are still alive, basically insinuating if you want, you can go talk to them, you could check it out, or talk to people who have who have met them. Well, in uh, verses 51 through 52, Paul provides the details about how the perishable will become imperishable. That those who belong to Christ will be transformed, as he says, in a twinkling of an eye in this translation, or in other translations, it's in a blink of an eye that they'll be transformed When Christ returns, God will transform those who are still living while still alive. You know, if if Christ comes tonight, you won't, if you belong to Christ, you actually won't die an earthly death. You will be transformed in this life without death from imperishable to perishable to imperishable to immortal. And God will also transform those who are dead, or as he says here, those who've who've fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died. He will transform them by raising them to a new and immortal life, to receive again their bodies transformed, to put off the perishable and put on the imperishable. Where he says it's like a, a trumpet blast, like a trumpet blast immediately calling a great army to battle. Think of uh, Ezekiel explaining the valley of the dry bones when the prophet says, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army, that with Christ's word sang so like a trumpet blast, they will uh, rise from death to immortal life. Well, if you belong to Christ, you will be one of them. If you belong to Christ, you will be one of them. Your sinfulness will be removed from you. That brokenness that you still experience inside of your heart, that rebellion that remains, will be taken away from you in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. If he returns in your lifetime, you won't experience uh, death, but you'll experience a transformed life. And if you die first, you have the promise that God will uh, perfectly reanimate your whole being. Well, where are you? Are you stuck in the blind brokenness of this world with no assurance about death? This is the way of the perishable, the way of death. Or have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ with the promised hope of the returning uh, to God eternally? This is the way of the imperishable, the way of life. Where would you rather be? The way of death or the way of life? Because a passage like this that talks about the perishable and the imperishable is saying there are only two options. There's no middle ground. There's no third, fourth, or fifth way. There's either life or death. Is there enough evidence for you? Or would you rather uh, take the risk, like my friend described, of facing death on your own? 
Will there ever be enough evidence for you? Or do you demand a sort of unattainable certainty? And by the way, you'll never get certainty on this, and neither will you with anything that's happened in history before you were born. You know, how can you be certain that there's such a person named Plato, you know? Uh, you can't. You have to trust history to tell you that tale and the evidence for it. Or how can you trust that there was such a thing called the Civil War? You weren't there, you know, but there's, you have good, good evidence for, for it. It's the same thing with the history of Jesus Christ, that this isn't some myth that's a sort of allegory to point you to, to higher truths about the way the world works, that the claim here in a chapter like 1 Corinthians 15 is that it's history, that this is something that happened in earthly history, and it means something uh, for you and me. And you can either believe it and accept it and live your life by it or not. It's not, uh, it's not a fairy tale. It's a claim about something that has happened. In Luke uh, chapter 16, Jesus tells a really uh, startling story. And it's a, it's a warning uh, to both the, the non-believer and the believer is the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus. And you, could, you can find this uh, in chapter 16 and verses 19 through 31. I'm not going to read it, but you probably know the story is about there was a, a rich man uh, who is in, in, in the, the way that is perishing. He hasn't uh, repented. He's an abuser of other people. And there's a, there is a, a man in his life named Lazarus who is uh, serving at his home, uh, who is a believer, who has repented, and they both die. And the rich man uh, goes to Hades, which is another way to say hell, where he experienced torment. And he's able to see beyond the chasm of, of Hades to heaven, where he sees the man Lazarus, who's with Abraham. And he begs, the rich man begs uh, Abraham to send Lazarus to, to soothe him. And Abraham says that this cannot happen because of the, the chasm that's fixed between us. And so the rich man says, well, if, if that can't happen, please send Lazarus back into the world to warn the people that I love, to, to warn uh, the, the people in my family. And then Jesus ends the story by saying, uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That some won't even believe Jesus if he raises from the dead. But this is a, this is a, 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 a warning to both the non-believer and the believer about the reality that's up ahead. The way that's of the perishing and the way of the imperishable. For those of us who are in Christ, you have knowledge about the way the universe actually works, that, that God has come from outside of the material universe into it to disclose the way things are going. You know the truth about death, both its earthly horror and its way of escape. And yet there are people all around you who are perishing. There are people that, that you love. Has anyone you've known died who did not belong to Christ. These folks, like the rich man in the parable, now call out to you from the grave. These folks, like the rich man in the parable, now call out to you from the grave, and they're calling out to you to tell others about the way of victory over death. 
Our passage today ends with a very clear application. Uh, a lot of passages, it's difficult for me or other preachers to think about, you know, what are the practical implications of this passage to share with you? But this one today is very clear in, uh, in verse 58. It's unambiguous in its implications. And he seems to be making uh, four statements in verse 58, but actually it's, they're, they're just two. Two applications for us, not just of verses uh, 50 through 58, but all of chapter 15. And the first one is this, to be steadfast and immovable, which really means to maintain faith that all of this stuff is true, that all of the content of uh, 1 Corinthians, and especially here in chapter 15, is actually true. And the second one is to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. So that first uh, application is to have faith and trust that there's uh, more to this life than meets the eye, uh, which is good news for all of us who will die, which is probably most of us, unless Christ comes first. And that second one, again, is to abound, which means uh, to have in large amounts. To have in large amounts, he says, uh, the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is primarily to share this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, that because of him there is hope for all uh, who will die, and that this labor is never in vain. Like the uh, sower in the, in the other parable, the parable of the sower, we ought to sow seeds of the gospel abundantly in large amounts to any and all who will hear and won't hear, with the prayer and hope that sometimes it will land on, on good soil. And so therefore, let us keep the faith of victory over the grave, first of all, for you, for me, for us, for those we love, to keep the faith in the victory over the grave through Jesus Christ who has gone before us, and also to abound in our sowing of this gospel message. Let's pray. Father, for these truths that, <clears throat> at least in this world in the 21st century, seem too difficult for us uh, to accept, uh, soften our hearts, remove that hardness from us, uh, to see the uh, truth of this reality and trust the, the evidence of 500 people who saw it, Lord, um, and what it means for our lives, that you have given us victory over the grave through your son, Jesus Christ, and give us a, a heart to want to share this message to all whom we love. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.